Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Today, we're here with one of the co-authors of Risky Business, Why Insurance Markets Fail and What to Do About It, Professor Amy Finkelstein. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, John. If you could talk a little bit about your background, your work at MIT, and uh, the catalyst uh, for the three of you getting together and writing this book. Yeah, so I'm an economics professor at MIT, and my uh, first love in the economics world uh, was insurance. Um, uh, so uh, I think people don't necessarily realize the uh, attraction and excitement of insurance. Uh, it in- touches nearly every aspect of our lives. We insure our cars, our houses, our pets, our lives, literally. Uh and I think it offers something, dare I say, magical, the hope for security uh, in an uncertain world. But unfortunately, it, it often fails to deliver on that promise. And I think the reasons for that are, are poorly understood out, outside of a perhaps a narrow circle of academic insurance junkies such as myself uh, and my co-authors, which gets to your question of how this book came about. I think the, in some sense, the genesis or a genesis of it was listening to the uh, 2012 Supreme Court case oral arguments about whether or not the mandate for health insurance under Obamacare was constitutional. Now, we're not legal scholars. I know nothing about whether or not, you know, it is constitutional. But what what really sort of got me jumping up and down uh, in, in frustration was when uh, then Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia posed the question during oral argument, well, if, if the government can mandate that people buy insurance, can they also mandate that we eat our broccoli? <laughs> now, he obviously meant that rhetorically and to sort of conjure up an image of an intrusive uh, paternalistic state. And I'm sure he understands the difference between insurance and broccoli or uh, but I think actually that that comment revealed that a lot of people don't really understand the fundamental difference between insurance and broccoli. And that misunderstanding can result in, in ruined businesses, ruined lives, and, and ruined policies. So let me, if it's okay, just take a minute and explain. This was sort of our alternative title for the book is Why Insurance is Different from Broccoli. Uh, and, and the heart of the problem is a problem of what we call selection, which afflicts any market in which businesses care not just about how much they sell, but also who they sell to. So the supermarket wants to sell a lot of broccoli. It doesn't care if you buy it or I buy it. Its costs of producing and selling that broccoli are the same. But when a life insurer or a pet insurer Uh, or a homeowner's insurer is selling a product, how much it's going to cost them to provide that insurance product depends very much on whether they get accident-prone, high-risk customers or or low-risk ones. Uh, And so the problem is that somewhat amazingly and surprisingly, when you stop to think about it, despite the fact that insurance companies are extremely sophisticated, they have, you know, armies of actuaries and mounds of data, it turns out that people often know stuff about how accident prone they are, how much, how likely they are to have big claims on their insurance that insurance companies 
can't figure out. And the result is that when insurers offer insurance, the people who flock to it are the high cost customers, the ones who are, you know, more likely to have a fender bender in the case of auto insurance, or really, if their pet gets sick, want to do everything possible to keep Rover alive and spend a lot of money on it in the case of pet insurance. And why is that a problem? It's a problem because that then that drives up the price of insurance. The, the insurance has to be priced to reflect the fact that the people who buy it are likely to have a lot of claims. But all of us would value and benefit from the security that insurance can provide, including those of us who are excellent drivers and have very healthy pets, but there's some small chance of something going seriously wrong. And those people get priced out of the market. And that is fundamentally the problem of selection. It can cause uh, markets to disappear or to be severely handicapped. So if you've ever wondered why your dental insurance is so crummy, why it covers routine fillings and and, uh, cleanings, but not expensive implants, why pet health insurance is so expensive, why you can only change your health insurance in the fall, uh, why your auto insurer may ask about your credit rating. All of these are attempts to mitigate or solve the, the problem of selection. Or if you've ever wondered about insurance you can't buy, such as uh, layoff insurance against uh, losing your job or uh, divorce insurance, these are also examples of markets that have been tried and failed because of selection problems. Yeah, when I thought of the, the selection issue, and I, I would, is, is adverse selection the, the same term? Essentially exactly. Yes. yes. I, I think of the, uh, you know, the $20 all you can eat buffet you know who's going to who's going to show up for that uh <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Uh, that, that, you know, we, we focus on insurance markets in the book because, well, first, as I said, we're self-proclaimed insurance junkies, but also because uh, they're, they, as, as I said, it, it's really important and, and touches, I think, all aspects of your life. But as we talk about at the end of the book, uh, it's not just insurance markets that are plagued by selection. All-you-can-eat restaurants are another great example uh, you know, uh, hiring, or, you know, a, a employer's output depends on which workers it manages to hire. Uh, student loans uh, are another example. So we, so it's, it is not just uh, in insurance markets for sure. Right. And I'm, I'm going to leave the, the two big kahunas uh, for towards the end. One is the healthcare uh, situation in the United States. And uh, of course, the questions I have about your husband, Ben, my favorite recurring character in the story, but we'll save, we'll save that for later as he's, well. He's a favorite character of mine. And some of the stories didn't make it into the book, but you know, perhaps you can tease them out of me. I can get you, get you to talk about them now. Um, is the, is the right language in this is a two-part question you touched on it. In the, in the title's book, it talks about why insurance markets fail. Now I have car insurance. It's, I, I always think it's too expensive, um, but I have to have it. And I'm glad I'd get it anyway, as you said, you know, to, to, for, to that, that level of comfort and security that you feel. Um, the, the company that sells me the insurance is profitable, pretty profitable. They do, they do quite well. I'd say the same thing about um, some health insurance providers, uh, my life insurance company, which was optional, something I wanted for my family. Northwest Mutual does very well. Um, is the is the is the failure then just that it seems like it's never priced correctly for the individual because of that? Um, and I'll call it uh, the term that econ- economists have brought into my world, the financial world, efficient markets. The markets are just so inefficient, and I'm shocked that the the, the lack of ability to individually underwrite correctly is that the is that the failure just that it's never priced correctly and, and I'm a good I'm a good driver and I, I don't use it much, but I still pay. I pay more than I should have to and someone else pays less. Is that the definition of failure? That's a great question. Uh, I, I, what's, the, what's the Tolstoy line? Happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are unhappy in their own ways. There are many there are <laughs> right. well-functioning insurance markets are all alike. Failure takes many, many forms. So I think that the first uh, way insurance markets can fail is I think the most dramatic, but in some sense the hardest to realize because it's it's what you don't see. It's the markets uh, 
the insurance markets that literally can't exist. They, they get driven into a so-called death spiral because of selection. Uh, and we, we talk about some examples in the book um, where we could actually see entrepreneurs try to offer, say, layoff insurance. Uh, that market collapsed or divorce, divorce insurance. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's uh, that's or ge- some examples of very of generous health insurance that got selected out of existence because only the high costs were buying it. So they had to raise the price. So only the really sick people bought it. So the, and there it went round and round and round till it collapsed. So not existing is the first form of failure. The second form of failure is exactly what you uh, uh, mentioned is, you know, another candidate title for our book is, you know, why is pet insurance so darn expensive, um, right, is, is really high prices. So for example, uh, we have an example in the book, I think if you have a 12-year-old bulldog and you want to get a pet health insurance for them, I think it costs about uh, $4,300 a year for a policy whose maximum possible payout is $5,000, right? <laughs> right. Um, so that's like, yeah, it exists, but it's so expensive because, because um, you know, uh, uh, insurance companies find that the people who buy it are the ones who have very sick pets or pets they know they're going to spend a lot of money on. Um, I think one of the so, so not existing and being expensive are, are for sure the most obvious ones. I think one of the more interesting and insidious ones are all of the kinds of annoying fine print or limits on insurance that you may have uh, stumbled across and been annoyed about. So we talk in the book, for example, what, uh, the, our co-author Ray Fisman talks about uh, how he had terrible dental problems and needed implants and thought, great, I'll go you know, get good dental insurance to cover my implants. And he couldn't. Uh, many of you will know that you can't get you know, the dental insurance is insurance in name only. It's more like prepayment for your uh, semi-annual cleanings. Right. And that's precisely because of customers like Ray and, and the rest of us all like him who are going to wait until they need the insurance uh, to buy it. And we give other more serious examples of the book of, for example, health insurers who won't cover uh, AZT, a very expensive uh, uh uh, drug to help with uh, HIV, and the reason is in part because they don't want you know to attract uh, customers who have HIV who will be very expensive. Uh, other examples, though, that we talk about are not just you know things that won't be covered like implants or HIV, but but waiting periods. So if you've ever wondered uh, you know why when you buy insurance it says if you've if you've ever read the fine print it won't pay out in the first six months if you have an accident that's another way of trying to to prevent people from waiting until they know they're going to need it to buy it and on the one hand you could say well that's great because insurance isn't supposed to be a game it's supposed to actually be when there's uncertainty and you don't want to face the risk not once you know the bad thing is about to happen but the real problem is Sometimes you buy insurance and something unexpected happens in the first six months and you're you're not able to get insurance for that. Okay. Now, most of our examples are examples of, you know, making a product less attractive, covering less things, excluding certain things, putting waiting periods in to uh, try to deal with this selection problem at the real cost of providing less insurance. So it's not a perfect solution. There are examples, and I find these kind of interesting, where uh, actually insurers try and make their product more attractive to the customers they want to attract. So one of my favorite examples in the book uh, is work that um, researchers Cooper and Trevetti did showing that if you've ever wondered why some health insurers will bundle with their offer of health insurance a discount on your gym membership, you might have thought, oh, that's because my health insurer wants to keep me healthy. Spoiler alert, that's not the reason. There's actually um, some evidence we talk about in the book that suggests that these types of, you know, wellness programs unfortunately don't do much for your health. But what they do is attract the customers who can at least delude themselves into thinking, I'm going to really use that gym membership a lot. In other words, the low-cost, healthy customers. So that's another thing that insurers will do to try to uh, attract the customers they want and uh, avoid the ones they don't want. And that was a complicated chapter. And if I understand it correctly, they're actually saying, even when you're not allowed to individually underwrite, we're willing to knowingly price, um, underprice for 
those those adverse selection candidates in order to attract more of the good candidates, uh, which will be profitable for us and 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 build a whole business around that. Am I am I saying they even close to correct? Yeah. So right, the whole as I said, the the fundamental problem to remember is that we all benefit from insurance. The the good drivers like yourself, the terrible drivers like myself, uh, we all benefit from insurance. You know, ideally priced to reflect our risk. The insurance company is trying to offer it without making sure that they only get the bad drivers like me. One way they do that is to limit what they're going to pay out or put in waiting periods or exclusions or all the things that rightly aggravate us but are actually there for a reason. And the other way they can do it is try to make it really attractive to the good risks. So, you know, uh, I don't have an auto insurance example of this, but to go back to the health insurance example, um, the the uh, patient who's suffering from uh, many chronic conditions and is kind of a housebound couch potato is going to be less excited by the policy that also advertises, you know, discounted gym memberships. Or the the favorite example among uh, insurance junkies, which is surely apocryphal, but it's a nice illustration, is this idea that the uh, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Joe Stiglitz talked about in his uh, Nobel Prize address of putting an insurance company or health insurance company on the fifth floor of a walk-up. Now, right. I need to explain first for those of you who didn't grow up in, say, New York City, that a walk-up means a building without an elevator. So you have to walk up five flights of stairs. And also that this example was given circa 2001 before you know we did all of our shopping for everything, including insurance online. So if you actually had to go buy your insurance product, the idea would be that by put if the health insurer you know uh, positioned himself or herself on, on the fifth floor of a building that you had to walk up the stairs, that would deter the less healthy customers from buying insurance. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, and not, and you've not always, necessarily yeah. empirically accurate. <laughs> you know, Stiglitz is a theorist, not an empiricist, but a great, I think, yeah, visceral example of how it, it, it works. Exactly. And uh, you you already brought up this topic of, and this is interesting. There's this there's this uh, this battle, this push and pull, where buyers of insurance are trying to get you know something for less and they're not sharing everything if they don't have to, that might be beneficial to the underwriter. And then the insurance companies fight back with waiting periods and exclusions and uh, uh, other things like that. Is there, going back to that that concept of efficient or inefficient markets, if, if you had, again, theoretical, if you had a perfectly efficient insurance market, it would be now I'm introducing my finance terms. It would be kind of a cost of capital business where insurance company would underwrite everybody. There'd be small misses on both sides, but they'd offset each other, which is, you know, Eugene Fama's fantasy about efficient markets in the equity world. And uh, they, they, they makes enough money, pay their people, uh, you know, a very cost of capital return on, on book equity to their investors. Is there, any, is there any market that's even close to that in, in the world? Uh, not even close to it, but closest to that you draw lessons from as a, an economist? Yeah. So let me both uh, elaborate a little and, and agree with you and then also introduce just an annoying or interesting, depending on your perspective, wrinkle. So let's start, with the, let's start with the agreeing part, which is right, the way insurance is supposed to work is uh, there's a bunch of us who are all, you know, let's take me, we're kind of all equally terrible drivers or, or a group like you who are all pretty good drivers, but we all you know, there's some of us each year will have an accident and some won't. And as you said, the, 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 if I dare say it, dream or excitement of insurance is that the insurer can pool a bunch of people, all of whom say have a one in a hundred chance of an auto accident each year. And everyone's willing to pay a little bit more than their one in a hundred expected claims, you know, to have that peace of mind that if they are in an accident, they won't have a big bill. The insurance company takes all of our premiums, then on average, one in a hundred of us, you know, actually have the accident and they pay out and they get a little bit of, you know, but they, you know, we're willing to pay even a little more than our expected, you know, claims for that security. So the insurance company can cover its production costs and also maybe make a little bit of a profit. And that's the dream. That's the, you know, that's, that's the goal. Now, 
you might think, therefore, when you say, so how can this work, quote unquote, well or efficiently, would, would be if only there was no private information, if only insurers knew everything about uh, us that we know about ourselves, and therefore they could price insurance for people like me to reflect the fact that I'm, you know, prone to fender benders, and for people like you and all the other, you know, above average drivers to reflect the fact that you're safe drivers, and then the market could function for everyone. So that's the dream. But, and here's the caveat, then what's missing is the market for insurance against being a bad driver. It's not my fault I'm a bad driver. I try, but, you know, I'm kind of a klutz. Um, Or (laughs) or slightly more seriously, if you look at, you know, um, say health insurance, right, you could you know, get the market to function, quote unquote, efficiently, if there was, you know, if everyone had the same information, and the insurance company could price insurance higher for people who were predisposed to certain genetic diseases or chronic conditions. On the one hand, that would deal with this selection issue. On the other hand, you might think that, you know, it's that you then are sort of missing insurance against have, being prone to a genetic disease. And that's where you can think about the government coming in and offering so-called social insurance that's priced the same for everyone to, you know, ensure those risks that, you know, as John Rawls would say, behind the veil of ignorance. I don't yet know if I'm going to be born into a healthy, long-lived family or born into a family with a history of chronic conditions and genetic diseases. But behind the veil of ignorance, I'd like uh, both types of people to have insurance and not to have to pay more if I'm high risk. So then you get into issues of, you know, when you say a market is efficient, do you mean given what we all know right now versus, you know, how do I get insurance against being a bad driver or, you know, prone to certain diseases? Yeah. And I'll, I'll, there's not even, I don't even think there's a question here, just a, an observation in reading the book and your comments about big data and thinking about what I know about the world. And I, I still find it stunning, and maybe it's just not cost effective, that insurers don't know everything they need to know, except for the genetic things. No, I, I, I 100% agree with you. I think that's one of the aspects of, of of this, that when we forgot about, you know, our, you know, detailed academic studies and just stood back and thought about how to explain this uh, in the world, the one thing that we thought people would be puzzled by, and then the more we thought about it, no, actually, we're puzzled by it, too, is how is it possible in the world of big data, you know, that, pe- that in- people still know things that their insurance company doesn't know? You know, in the historical examples we talk about when they're offering, you know, survival contingent insurance and they're not pricing based on age and gender. And so, you know, it's the young French girls who survived smallpox who are buying it. You know, we get it. We get right. what they but then, but in today's day and age, you know, what is it? Uh, sometimes we give examples in the book. We know what it, we can. Clever researchers have figured out. You know, it's genetic information. We give also some anecdotal information. So, you know, uh, I actually, um, you know, the first time I um, bought automobile insurance, I was in my late twenties in graduate school, and my automobile insurer uh, looked at my driving record, which they do ask about, and they saw that I'd had a driver's license for ten years, and I had an absolutely spotless driving record. Uh, what they didn't know, uh, but of course everyone who knew me knew, is that I was actually a terrible driver. And the reason I had a spotless driving record is that I had gotten my driver's license at seventeen, and in, in growing up in Manhattan, only because my mother told me everyone needs a driver's license. It's an invaluable form of ID. And I hadn't driven in 10 years until I got my first car in grad school. So yeah, I had a spotless record, not because I was a good driver, but because I hadn't driven. So sometimes we can find you know, examples or, or stories like that, you know, and then the flip side of that, we talk about my co-author, Laurent Inev, who felt that, you know, so my auto insurance was priced too low for me. His was priced too high. It was priced to reflect, you know, two teenage boys in the household. Uh, 
But in fact, there had been an agreement that when the older one went to college, the car would become in the sole possession of the younger teenage boy. However, his older one went to college within 10 miles of his house. So the insurer says, no, you have two teenage boys living within a 20 mile radius or 100 mile radius or whatever it was. We're going to yeah. price the insurance to reflect that. He knew that, in fact, only one reckless teenage boy would be driving the car. Right. <laughs> so, so sometimes you can you know what the private information is. But but I think. Honestly, in, in many of the examples, uh, we don't. We give the example of life insurance in the book, where there's this um, fascinating work that the economist Dai Feng He did, in which she looked in survey data where they ask people, you know, about buying life insurance, and they ask them an enormous amount about their health, their family conditions, their life, their family history, excuse me, their lifestyle choices, and yet even and in fact insurers ask about all that even despite all that when she looks over time the ones who buy life insurance do have a higher rate of death over the next 10 to 15 years and we honestly don't know what it is that people know about themselves that insurers don't you know they ask about your medical history your family's medical history so then we thought oh maybe it's like you know that you, you travel to dangerous places nope they ask about that or have dangerous hobbies like skydiving nope they they ask about that. And yes, they don't check, but if you have a claim, they sure check. And, you know, it's not yeah. going to have done you any good to dissimulate there. So the best that I've been able to come up with is the idea that, you know, whatever the insurer knows, they put into their pricing. And so you may not be, or I may not be as good, I'm surely not as good at the, as in the insurer at, you know, writing down an, an actuarial model of my 10-year death probability. But when they take everything they know about me, all my, you know, they do a health exam, they ask a family history, they ask about my lifestyle choices, and they use that to say, okay, here's how much a, you know, 49-year-old female economics professor who leads a boring life, you know, here's her 10-year mortality risk, and we're going to price it accordingly. I have some inkling that relative to other middle-aged, you know, boring economist professors, whether I'm like, have any fun or do anything at all risky or not, and that must be somehow what's coming into play here. But that's conjecture, right? Because we know in the data that people do have this private information that insurers don't have, but I share your sense that it, it kind of boggles the mind that big data hasn't solved this problem. Yeah, I, we, we keep thinking it's going to, right? Uh, I'm so afraid of it too, right? We, that's what we believe. I'm, I, I joke. I, I'm pretty sure Google and Apple know how many times I go to the liquor store every week. You know, they they're tracking my phone, my movements. They have data. They have. I mean, it's it's insane. Um, yeah. So an ex, a, a non-insurance example, actually, a finance example that came up after we finished writing the book, that I think kind of illustrates this is do you, I don't know if you remember the short-lived Zillow offers in which the uh, Zillow which you know serves as a platform for uh, you know real estate and yeah. prices for real estate decided to get into the business of actually buying and selling homes so you could sell Zillow your home and and again the idea is come on they they have a they have massive amounts of data, tons of experience to offer, you know, to be able to predict prices. Why not then buy homes? Well, I think, you know, it collapsed very, you know, after a few years. And I think the reason very clearly is, yes, it knows exactly, you know, what are, you know, the demand for, you know, a a house with an extra bathroom or an extra basement or square footage or whatever. But you know about that troubling mold in the corner that you've painted (laughs) over three times, right? And so I, so Once again, big data knows a lot and a lot that we don't know, but then we always seem to know something that it doesn't. Yeah, that that, uh, little leak that came through the roof into your ceiling in the bedroom that you quickly patched over and painted and and no one's for the wiser. Um, I I must say also, you're you're pretty rough on yourself uh, about your, your driving. I don't think it's fair. Uh, having grown up uh, in Manhattan where you don't need a car and then moving to the world of rotaries that uh, <laughs> that was that I, I would still find that challenging um, what would um, so oh it, again we there's no silver bullet it's there's a very complicated imperfect markets there's push and pull one of the better solutions and we, we without using the term we kind of dance around the issue of the law of large numbers that uh, you talk about is uh, as a one of the better solutions towards moving towards efficiency 
is is the mandate. And I know this is going to uh, probably introduce, and I'll put it off until again later, uh, healthcare. Um, but in a way, the auto market has a mandate too. It's just, but it's interesting. I didn't realize how many differences there were. Like you bring up Florida and how you can have minimal insurance. You don't. Ha- you might have some places it's mandated you get insurance for the uninsured driver who hits you, which makes an enormous amount of sense living in California for 10 years, where when I was there, supposedly 40% of the drivers had no insurance. Um, uh, talk about the the power of the, the mandate and moving us towards better markets in the insurance world. Yeah, I think mandates are a, a fascinating example of both how powerful economics is and and then the limits when we confront the so-called real world. Uh, so, so mandates, as you alluded to, are a textbook solution to the problem of selection. And this dates back to the some of the original work uh, on adverse selection, the economist George Akerlof, who wrote about this in the 70s, subsequently won the Nobel Prize for this work. Uh, he has this famous and, and, and I think quite beautiful 12, very short 12-page article called The Market for Lemons. So he his, his main example there is the market for used cars and how that can collapse because, you know, anytime you go to buy a used car, you worry, you know, that the seller knows something about how bad the car is that you don't know. And therefore, you kind of shade your offer to take into account, well, there must be all kinds of problems I don't know about, which makes it hard to sell a good used car at a, at a decent price. Right. And, that's his motivating example, but he talks about other examples, including, of course, insurance, and he suggests uh, mandates as a solution. So if the problem, to go back, is that we all would value and benefit from having insurance against, let's take auto insurance, right, both the good drivers and the bad drivers, because even the very good drivers, there's always some risk. That's what insurance is about, just some unfortunate, unlucky chance that you have an accident and then you want uh, to be able to repair pair your car or buy another one. Uh, but the problem is that only that when insurers offer it, the high cost accident prone drivers are going to flock to the market, driving up the price and pricing out the low risk drivers. So one solution that Akerlof talks about is a mandate. Say, well, but everyone has to buy insurance, right? Auto insurance. And that way we force both the good risks uh, and the uh, high risks into the market and make sure that everyone gets insurance. And that is a solution, uh, but it it has some problems. Uh, the first and perhaps most obvious is that because we're mandating that people buy insurance, you know, we're doing it because they wouldn't buy, some people wouldn't buy it otherwise. So while it makes the market work, it makes that efficient outcome. Some people are the low risk drivers. They're paying a price that now doesn't reflect just very high risk drivers in the market, but reflects like average risks in the market. And so that's a societal trade-off that if we're going to make the mark to make the market work for everyone, there are going to be some people who pay more than their expected costs. Now, again, if you think, well, behind the veil of ignorance, we never knew what kind of driver we were going to be, and this is how we want society to function, maybe we're okay with that. The other uh, two problems, or, or at least two, so one is the one you talked about when you when you mentioned, as we mentioned in the book, that just saying, well, we're going to mandate everyone has, have auto, has auto insurance is only the first step. You then have to decide how much auto insurance and you get, you know, what we call the Goldilocks problem, right? Uh, if you mandate, you know, very little auto insurance, then many people are going to want more. So there'll be a market for more comprehensive coverage, which sounds like a good thing until you realize you're just going to recreate the selection The selection problem. issue. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Every, you know, who, well, everyone wants a little more, a lot of people want a little more coverage, but it's going to be priced reflecting that the uh, more accident prone are, are likely to buy it and therefore it can drive either the price up or the market out of existence. Of course. The other thing about mandates, um, which we, we kind of don't think about and yet is always there, as you commented, yeah, in California, you know, there was a mandate and then you had to get extra insurance for, you know, in case you got hit by an uninsured driver. So just stop and think about that for a second. There's a mandate to have auto insurance, and yet there are uninsured drivers, right? Right, so, right. Uh, you know, I said, I, I said that, you know, one of the key points of our book is to realize that insurance isn't like broccoli. But one way insurance is like broccoli is if you've ever tried to tell your toddler, you know, to eat their broccoli, you know that saying doesn't make it so. And right. similarly, mandating <laughs> that everyone have uh, insurance doesn't 
make it so. You need to think about how uh, you're going to enforce that. And, you know, depending on either the, the sticks in terms of fines you offer or the carrots in terms of subsidies and discounts, just simply having a mandate will not doesn't necessarily mean that everyone will have insurance. And so you right. can also recreate the selection problem uh, purely on the enforcement margin. Yeah, and just a new source of inefficiency. Uh, so a couple more topics before we get to, to healthcare specifically. Um, we talked before I hit record about the target audience who might listen to this, everyone from other professors of economics, experts in insurance, people who are just interested. Everyone, as you pointed out at the beginning, is a consumer in, in ways they know and ways they don't and exposed to uh, insurance. One of your co-authors is a, a behavioral economist. That That is a topic that has almost gone mainstream thanks to you know, Thaler and Sunstein. I'm a huge fan of it and, and, and Kahneman and Tversky, um, the psychology of, of our decision making. What does behavioral economics say about this issue? Uh, you actually, the, the word nudge shows up a few times in that one uh, chapter. Did they have any you know solutions or recommendations? Again, just a Anything else they, they, they've come up with that could nudge the markets towards uh, efficiency by nudging proper behavior? And I'm, I'm going to stop using that word and let you expound a little bit. Yeah, I would say, you know, we actually I, we actually steered mostly clear of behavioral economics in this book, because uh, I think once you start thinking about behavioral economics, uh, you realize there's a whole other class of problems in insurance markets that have nothing to do with selection. Uh, so far, we've focused on the problem of everyone should you know, want insurance to cover this risk, uh, and yet the market doesn't work, is inefficient, as you said, or fails, as we colloquially say. There's a whole other class of problems, which is um, people either not realizing they need insurance because, you know, people don't like to think about, you know, terrible things that could happen in the future, like going into a nursing home. So they put off buying it or they underestimate the risk of it or the flip side, which is uh, people getting kind of hoodwinked into uh, because people tend to overestimate, you know, low probability, but salient events, you know, the idea of buying uh, trip insurance, right? Uh, uh, Or uh, a warranty on your toast, your, you know, $80 toaster. These are, you know, insurance is about the big risks in life, the thing that could really make a big difference in your life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate if your toaster, you know, breaks, but those, those warranties are priced to sort of take advantage in some sense of your, the, the salience of the thought in the moment when you're buying it. And they're often priced in a way that just, it makes no sense to pay, say, $10 for a, for a, for a warranty. I, I remember um, when we got our last car, the, uh, the salesman was trying very, very hard, you know, with, with one discount after another to get us to buy a warranty on the car that, you know, would only kick in after the manufacturer warranty was up and, you know, up to some very limit after that. And we had to keep pushing back and, you know, using all of our economics knowledge to say, no, 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 we know this is, this is not a good deal. They, they make it, you're buying a car. It's so expensive. It's, it's very visceral to think, oh, yes, I want that extra security. So in some sense, behavioral economics introduces an entire other class of issues about insurance markets that perhaps will be the subject of a different book. Yeah, you, you referenced the the, uh, the sequel to this one. Maybe that's the third one, the behavioral economics side. And by the way, you just introduced yet another area where insurance is in our lives is is the warranty. You know, um, it's every time you buy an iPhone, I, they want you to insure. It's like ten percent of the cost of the phone. You know, and yes, but, exactly. I, in fact, yeah. in fact, uh, you, uh, our 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 teenage son uh, it got a laptop for school and was you know sitting and working on his laptop in the gym. This was you know last year, so there were still COVID restrictions and different parts of the school weren't open. So this was actually one of the places they were supposed to go, a big open area, you know, during right. study hall. And somebody, you know, kicked a basketball into his laptop and, you know, I mean, accidentally, not on purpose, right. but right. shattered the screen. Oh. And he was beside himself, you know, and and he called and, you know, was super worried. He's like, you know, is it going to cost a lot to fix? Do we have insurance? And we were like, no, we don't have insurance. And he got even more upset. And we were like, 
but we made this decision for a good reason. And even, and it was the right decision. And, and, and he was so upset and it was, he thought it was his fault and he should pay for it. And I finally had to sit him down and be like, you know, there are, there are many things in life that I am not good at, including most aspects of parenting, I'm sure. But like, I am an expert on insurance and daddy and I thought very hard and did the calculation and we knew it was not a good idea to buy a warranty on on the screen of your laptop, even knowing you're a teenage boy who might, you know, and we're fine. We will pay to fix the screen and we're and we're not buying insurance on it next time because, and we have to explain about exactly, yes, you were unlucky, but it's priced as if it only would make sense to buy it if you had like a 50% chance of your of getting the screen, you know, cracked in a six month period. And yes, you're an accident prone teenage boy, but even accident prone teenage boys don't have that high a chance. So yeah. And let me just say also the, the mental image of the Carl's car salesman trying to sell to two professional economists, something that they obviously shouldn't buy is going to, is going to stick with me for at least a week. I, I love the, uh, the image of that moment. Um, what, one of the other two topics left before we get to healthcare um, there's a there's a third actor kind of in this play that doesn't come up as far as I can tell, um, and maybe they're small, but it's it impacts the cost of insurance. It's the recipient of the insurance proceeds. And by the way, I share your distaste for dental insurance. We could do another hour just on that, but that's a perfect example. You know, I, I'm not bragging. This is relevant to the story, I swear. I'm 55 years old. I have no cavities, okay? I was told when I was 25 by a dentist, yeah, at this point, you probably won't. Whatever, for whatever reason. I don't know. Genetics. And uh, yet, every time I go into the dentist, and I, I only use one of the two cleanings a year, they try to you know assume I'd be happy to get x-rays. And their pitch, again, verbatim is, it's free. <laughs> it doesn't cost anything. That, those are the two pitches I get. Why wouldn't you, right? Well, of course it's not. I'm not paying for it, but the insurance company is paying for it, right? That's a that's something that's covered X number of times, and they know it, and they just uh, try to sell. Another fun example: I witnessed it uh, when I was living in uh, north of Chicago in northern Illinois. Is after a hailstorm, the roofers going door to door, telling you, "Hey, I'll inspect your roof for free. I'll do the paperwork, but you can get a free roof out of this." Uh, from your homeowner's insurance policy. Um, is there a name for those intermediaries that also, and I don't, I'm not trying to lead you into saying something <laughs> vulgar, but. Uh, no, no, no. There's there actually, you know, your all these questions are making me think of, you know, we, we tried very hard to stick to one topic and explore it in detail, but, but you're raising all the other fascinating aspects of insurance that we didn't cover in this book. Uh, and the one you're referring to has a somewhat, you know, technical name in economics called moral hazard. Okay. Right? It's the idea that, right, again, the purpose, it's a different form of private information. It's, it's the hidden action that we don't, the insurer doesn't get to see everything that the customer does. And so insurance is priced to avoid risk, but then the fact that you're less exposed to risk can make you more willing to bear risk because, you know, so getting an x-ray when it doesn't cost you anything, right? The purpose of the dental insurance is if you need an x-ray, it's right. supposed to pay pay for it. But if now that x-rays are free, you're more likely to get them, uh, you know, or, you know, you want to get your roof repaired because it'll be free. That's called moral hazard. Uh, and that also can drive up the cost of insurance. Because again, then we have to price the dental insurance to reflect not just the typical risk of needing x-rays or even the risk of people with bad teeth who may disproportionately be buying dental insurance needing x-rays, but adding in the fact that, well, when it's free, lots of people are going to get x-rays even if they don't quote unquote need them. Um, one of the biggest examples of this comes up with unemployment insurance, which the government uh, provides some amount right. of unemployment insurance to many workers. And the point is so that in the unfortunate event that you lose your job, you have some resources coming in uh, so that you can continue to pay your bills, pay your rent, uh, buy food, etc., while you search for and try to find another job. But the very fact that now being unemployed is not I mean, it's still terrible, but it's not as terrible as it would be if you didn't have some unemployment insurance coming in. That's the point of insurance, but right. it can therefore make, and there's a lot of empirical evidence on this, it can make people um, 
take longer to get to their net to find a new job uh, because they're going to be more picky about the job or, or search a little less hard because they do have a cushion. That cushion is supposed to be there. It's doing a good thing, but it can then drive up the costs of insurance. And that the term for that is, is moral hazard. Okay. Um, one more topic as I said before, again, before I hit record, there are people that are going to be listening to this and go, God, you've got, you know, you've got to ask her about this. You have to ask her about that. Um, and I'm sure as a, a medical doctor at a family gathering, someone might look for that. Hey, you know, what do you think about this? That, you know, free advice, you must get asked by family members, friends, neighbors, relatives all the time. You know, what do you think about, uh, X, um, and so I'm just going to throw out a couple to you that I, I, I've thought of. You already talked about pet insurance. I have three dogs. I've looked at it and said, no, that that doesn't make sense. Um, long-term care insurance. I mean, it's just kind of like health insurance, I guess, right? Where I know something they don't. Um, what do you what do you advise friends and family when it comes to long term care insurance? Right. So long term care insurance, which covers home health care or nursing home care, is an example of a market in which there is evidence of this type of selection problem. That um, so, for example. Um, uh, the economist Emily Oster, before she became a household name for her advice on, uh, you know, raising young children, actually did some really uh, interesting work on the selection problems in long-term care insurance, uh, looking at uh, people who have a parent with the Huntington's Korea disease, which which is a uh, extremely debilitating disease. It hits in your uh, post-reproductive uh, age, so that's why it hasn't been weeded out. It's a genetic disease, uh, and it usually comes with, you know, needing uh, many years or even decades of, of nursing care. Uh, and so if you have a parent with this disease, because it's a dominant gene, you have a 50-50 chance of getting uh, Huntington's. And she, she and her co-authors find that, in fact, people uh, who have a parent with this disease are more likely to buy nursing home or long-term care insurance. Also, among the people who then do a test for whether they, in fact, have the gene, they have a 50-50 chance. Those who win the genetic lottery and don't have it uh, are less likely to buy nursing home insurance than those who uh, find that they, unfortunately, do have the gene. So that's to say that selection exists in the market. That doesn't mean you shouldn't buy it, even if, you know, A, you might be a higher risk type, or you might just be... um, you know, the, uh, a, uh, a very uh, risk averse type. Uh, so even if you think you're low risk, unfortunately not going to need this insurance, you still might want it and you still might uh, be willing to uh, pay a little more just for that security and peace of mind. So my advice for people who want it, with um, two pieces of advice, one is sort of generic to any insurance and the other is, is specific to long-term care insurance. So the, the generic advice is if you think that you um, are in fact a relatively low risk customer, but you want the insurance for the peace of mind, one of the best ways to get a, a, a good deal on insurance is to be willing to buy the policies that come with some of the limitations like waiting periods or right. deductibles. Those come at a cost. Those are real insurance that you're missing, but they're priced in a way uh, that... Um, that can make it uh, uh, much more advantageous because they're they're not appealing to people who are very high risk. So an example, which I don't think we put in the book, uh, is when we bought our first home. I searched high and low for for the most uh, the highest homeowners deductible known to man. I mean, a lot of homeowners policies, <laughs> which are which are having which are actually you know insuring a, a really large expense, namely your home, they have like a thousand dollar deductible, five hundred dollar deductible. I managed to find a policy with a ten thousand dollar deductible. Right. Uh, a few years after we bought our home, yeah, we live in Boston, and there was that horrible 2015 winter with uh, you know massive amounts of snow and everyone's home, including ours, had ice dams, we blew through our deductible, unfortunately. Mm. Um, The following year, we had an unfortunate uh, water leak, flood in the basement, blew through the deductible again, uh, caused my long-suffering husband to remark somewhat wryly that it sure was expensive being married to an insurance (laughs) expert. (laughs) Yet the truth is, you know, at this point, we've lived in the house for about... (coughs) 
<laughs> excuse me, we've lived in the house for about 13 years. And despite those two, you know, fairly large disasters, it's still been the case that we've saved money by paying the much lower premiums on the policy with the $10,000 deductible. No, don't worry. We'll get back to Ben. We'll get to him. <laughs> but then my, my other piece of advice, which really doesn't have much to do with selection, and go for, uh, but about nursing home insurance, which goes back to behavioral economics, is if you're buying it, most people are buying it, say, in their 60s. And if you, if you do end up needing a nursing home, you're much more likely to need it in your 80s. So you really want to get a policy in which the benefits, the amount they'll pay per day in the nursing home, are will rise with inflation. Otherwise, okay. you'll buy something now that looks kind of good based on current nursing home you know, daily rates. And by the time you may need it, it will be uh, substantially less good. So that's my other little piece of financial okay. advice. Um, one more that I think people would want to hear about, and, and it jumped out at me in the book and being coming from the investment side of this discussion is annuities. When it first came up in the book, I was apoplectic because it, it, it was oh, everyone should have this. Why don't more people have it? And and from my perspective, all you hear about is it's just too expensive. Um, if you had that kind of, if it's kind of this dichotomy. If you had enough money uh, to buy it and have put aside some of that money for security and comfort, you could probably replicate um, with some professional help with your investment portfolio what the annuity does. And do you then, then do get back to some of the complexities? I know that you've done some work on this. I think it was in the UK. Talk a little bit about uh, annuities to the, uh, to the consumer of potentially – Yes. Yeah, uh, so, so, so an annuity, just to be clear, is is you can think of it as reverse life insurance, right? You buy life insurance so that you can you your family will get a payout in the unfortunate event of your demise. Uh, annuities are uh, payout as long as you live, so they're survival contingent payment streams. So, so let's right. start with why you would want them. You know, you sort of said, and I think a lot of people have this intuition: if you're fortunate enough to retire with enough money that you could buy an annuity, you can probably just get a, a good financial planner to help you uh, deal with your money in retirement. And and in principle, that's that's not quite right in the sense that you know uh, when you retire, let's let's leave aside whatever money you might want to leave for your kids and just think about the money you have to live on during your retirement. It's a fixed amount. And, you know, imagine it was just a lump sum that was given to you when you retire. If you, you know, make sure to save save for a rainy day, otherwise known as a as a long life, and just you know spend a, a little bit each year, you could miss out on a lot of you know great consumption opportunities, you know, round the world cruises, visits to the grandchildren, etc. Because you want to save some money to make sure you have it in the event of living a very long time, and then you might unfortunately die, and then. That was wasted. On the other hand, uh, suppose you say, no, 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 let's, you know, live life for the present, carpe diem, let's go, you know, visit the grandchildren, take them to Disney World, etc. And you end up living much, much longer than expected. Of course, that's a good thing on, on many levels, but right. from a but you may end up like having very little resources then in your old age. And so the what an annuity can do is allow you to actually not have to either risk ending up, you know, living a long time and being impoverished or foregoing all those fun things when when you're, you know, just retired and want to see the world uh, by saying, look, I'm going to hand over a lump sum of money. And in return, the insurance company is going to give me a certain amount every every month or every year that I remain alive. And that allows me to get more every month or year because, you know, again, we're pooling risks. Some people will die and, and then not get that amount and some people will live a long time. So that's the tantalizing prospect of them. Uh, but of course, you know, very few or not, of course, it turns out very few people buy them. Uh, and one of the reasons is because they're the people who do buy them are the long lived people. And so they're, <laughs> okay. they're, they're priced uh, to, to reflect that. And we, we give the, uh, you know, so this is true in modern times. It was also true uh, historically. We go back to, you know, some examples from the 17th century in which, you know, the French government was, and, and the Dutch governments were trying to basically finance their wars by issuing annuities instead of bonds where they said, you know, hand over some money and we'll pay out as long as you live. And, and they, you know, we, there's some evidence that this kind of led to the French Revolution with Louis XIV just, you know, 
buying annuity or, or selling annuities on on people who ended up living a very long time. Um, and but even in in modern times, we still uh, have that problem that that if you look at who buys annuities, and they're not very many of them, but they do tend to live much longer than the general population. So full circle to selection again. Exactly. And uh, I will I will tell you as a a financial advisor that also had a mortgage license. I've been predicting for five years that reverse mortgages would make a comeback. Oh uh, yeah, reverse. You, you, you're uh, you're uh, hitting on all the economists' favorites. So reverse mortgages are are another example of a market that you know economists you know think should exist and then don't. And selection is one of the reasons. Right. Reverse mortgages. You know, many elderly don't want to leave their home. Um, you know, and and they they wish though they had you know more money for for food and and clothing and travel, and in principle they should they should be able to you know take out uh, you know a policy that you know basically says to the bank you have you get my home when I die and until that point you give me some money each year, um, but those also suffer from the same selection problem and we talk about in the book of a rather famous example of the French woman Jean Calment who. Uh, uh, went into one of these um, uh, so-called reverse mortgages uh, with with, and she did it, I think, in her 90s, and she ended up being the the longest lived woman in the world. <laughs> uh, she lived to 122, I think, and you know the person who had uh, you know bought the, or sold her this reverse mortgage, I think she outlived him as well. So you know th- these are the types of problems. Yeah, that was a great story. And I actually uh, wanted to bring it up, but I was too terrified to pronounce her name. So uh, I'm glad I'm you sure did it for I'm me. Not, I'm mangling it, but I, no, I, was... I don't think so. Um, all right, let, let's go to healthcare. You know, you, you work in public policy and health, you, work, you also work in government intervention. This topic brings so many things we've talked about uh, together, including uh, the ACA, the mandate uh, that was uh, debated at the Supreme Court level. Um, how do I want to start this? Um, you you do talk in the book about the potential of uh, high deductible plans. Um, and you also referenced something earlier. And I, I was writing because uh, I didn't want to forget it while you were talking um, that there's there are people who are just uninsurable. Once you know you have this XYZ genetic disease, is there a a blend of approaches where you have private insurance, like you know, the government takes over flood insurance? So you can't, you know, I, I, that's a whole other topic for me, um, and and another moral hazard maybe. But what what are your um, broad conclusions about what we can need to do if you had a magic wand? Obviously, there's there's politics, you know, but you, the Economist, has a magic wand and you could um, change everything. Oh, and it's still, it's not going to be perfect. We'll, we'll say that up front. What are the, what are the changes that you could see uh, making to our, our health insurance situation? I'll just share another anecdote. I'm a, a, also spent some time in the sustainable food world and it could be apocryphal, but there's a saying that, you know, 50 years ago, we spent twice as much on food as we do on healthcare. Now we spend twice as much on healthcare as we do on food and, and insurance is right in the middle of it. And there's, a, you know, we're right, we're right there. There's government intervention. There's still private markets all trying to do it together. That was too long a preamble, but I'll let you talk a little bit about what you're, what you're thinking about our insurance situation. So you're thinking about health insurance in particular. Sorry, health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'll say a a couple of things. I think the first is uh, our main message in the last third of the book, which is about policy solutions or quote unquote solutions, is um, that there there are no panaceas or simple answers. And um, anyone who tries to tell you otherwise is is selling you something. Um, uh, There are there are but. You can, when you understand the problem of selection, you can understand some of the trade-offs better. So one example we we talk about, um, which relates to this earlier issue of you know fairness or insurance against you know being a unhealthy person. Um, one of the ways that governments tried to solve this problem in New York and New Jersey in the 1990s in the market for health insurance that isn't provided by your employer, so the the sort of small group or individual market, is they said, look, you know, it's 
we shouldn't be penalizing people who have the misfortune of, of having a diabetes or predisposed to a genetic disease. So we're going to impose uh, what's called a community rating and guaranteed issue. And let me say, it did guarantee issues. <laughs> so, so community rating means everyone in the community gets charged the same price, that insurers can't charge different prices based on your age or your health. And guaranteed issue means, and they have to sell to anyone who comes. So one way you can, if you have to charge everyone the same price, you can say, okay, we'll charge everyone the same price, but we're not going to insure everyone. So they said, no, you have to uh, offer to, you have a price of insurance. It has to be the same for everyone, and you have to be willing to sell to anyone who wants it. That was to deal with these genuine and real issues of of fairness. On the other hand, what happened? Uh, it was a classic uh, death spiral that the you know the people who were who came to buy when you know price wasn't priced on age or pre-existing conditions were older people and people with pre-existing conditions that drove up the price of the insurance uh, because they had, you know, the, the state had to cover, the insurers had to cover their claims. Uh, and then only the really, you know, sick people were willing to buy and the market ultimately was driven out of existence. So, so you know, is that fair? On the one hand, yes, everyone has access to the same non-existent insurance policy. Yeah, it's fair, right. but it, it's kind of, you know, got to, you know, the you know, a, a bad situation for everyone. Um, on the other hand, some of the quote unquote solutions to this problem uh, are things that I can understand why they're also going to seem uh, very unappealing when, you know, when you think about them uh, uh, just from a political uh, perspective. So as we talked about, what you really need in these insurance markets is to get the low-risk customers to be willing to buy uh, and to pool, as it were, with the high-risk customers. So as we talk about in the book, and there's been a bunch of academic research on this, somewhat counterintuitively, if you want to you know, make a health insurance market work for older people and sicker people, the way to do it is to offer discounts to the young, healthy people. That's how you get them to come into the market and prevent the right. market from collapsing. But I, you can also see why that seems very uh, unappealing and, uh, you know, unintuitive from and hard to sell politically. So um, I think the, the, our main lesson um, on the uh, in terms of dealing with selection in health insurance markets is to say or any market is to say, you know, there are no easy solutions. It's not a case of the dumb politicians in Washington just not getting it. Um, there are real trade-offs involved, and the more we understand, uh, you know, the selection issue, the more we can then think about how we want to deal with those trade-offs. Do we want to say no? It's not uh, fair for people to uh, be charged more if they're unhealthy, even if that means uh, prices are going to go up and the market may become more limited? Or do we want to allow for people to be charged more if they have a pre-existing condition? Those are genuinely hard problems. Yeah. And it's it's not only just the the, the pre-existing condition, which is kind of the, the crown jewel of, of ACA for me, but is uh, that, that individual underwriting has gone away. I, I could be wrong about this. I entered the job market full-time in 1989, but I even feel like in a on a company plan, I was, I don't know, filling out a questionnaire saying whether I smoked and and things like that. Um, it sounds like that kind of way went away in the New York, New Jersey ex- experiment in the '90s, and it certainly went away um, with with ACA, right? And and I get that. Uh, it was yeah. Just- we, we talk about another example in the book. Um- about um, Harvard University's health insurance right. plan. It's always, because it's always fun to, you know, especially as an MIT <laughs> professor to, to like poke fun at Harvard, right? Yeah. Um, but but it, it's a very similar to what you said. They had a basic plan and a more generous plan. And at some point, and they were, you know, they were, you know, paying for part of both. And at some point they thought, well, this, you know, we need A, we're losing some money on our health insurance plans. And, and B, you know, why should we, you know, pay for people who want more generous coverage and other people don't, why don't we just offer everyone the basic plan and make people who want the more generous coverage pay the extra cost of it? And those who don't can, you know, have higher wages and, and you know, go buy other things they want, which, which sounds great until 
uh, you remember, as Harvard should have, uh, the selection problem and what happened. And, and uh, two researchers, uh, Sarah Reber and David Cutler, show this very nicely, is that once people had to pay the full you know, differential cost for the more comprehensive coverage, it was the older and sicker employees who, who were willing to buy it, and that had to drive up the costs of it. So they had to raise the premiums yet again. And right. Then really the very oldest and the very sickest. And, and once again, it drove the market uh, out of existence. It was a, a, a classic death spiral. So, you know, again, what makes what are typical economic lessons about, you know, efficient pricing, making people pay for what they're buying, uh, run into problems when you're also confronting these selection issues. Right. Uh, well, professors, is there anything else uh, you want to talk about? I should have asked about if I understood these these markets a little better that you want listeners to think about in um, in the context of this book. Uh, it's no, I think you've actually done a great job um, covering all of this. I guess the the only thing I uh, add is you know a tip to a consumer, which is uh, you know the whole purpose of insurance is to protect you against risk. And risk means uncertainty. You may or may not end up with the car accident or needing the um, health insurance. So A, don't, you know, some people think, gosh, I've been buying, you know, this auto insurance for years and never gotten a payout. That's the wrong way to think about it. You You should be happy that you haven't had an auto accident, but also happy that you've been living with the security of knowing that if you did, you would get a payout. And then the other thing I'd say is, you know, don't wait until the risk is realized to buy the insurance because that undermines the purpose of insurance and insurers are smart enough to have figured that out. And so one of the examples we give in the book, again, poking a little fun at my long suffering husband, you know, is when he was in graduate school, he had a fairly basic AAA roadside assistance policy. You know, he's a grad student, he doesn't have much money, but he loved his hometown mechanic, uh, which was only about 40 or 50 miles away from where he was in grad school. And so when his car ultimately did break down, he decided he wanted a tow to his hometown mechanic uh, and his basic AAA didn't cover it. It covered only, I think, 10-mile towing radius. So this was like in the very early days of cell phones. I think he had his first cell phone and he thought, you know, well, he's he's quite clever. He just stands there with his car, you know, smoking by the side of the road. And he calls up AAA and says, I'd like to uh, I'd like to buy the platinum service, you know, the one that will tow, you know, within 100 miles. And they say, sure thing, sir, right away, sir. Okay, let's get your credit card. Let's do that. And that's right. And that policy will go into effect in two weeks. <laughs> right? right. And so like, don't be like my husband in that respect and wait till your car is broken down by the side of the road to, you know, get the insurance that you might have want in that in that scenario well for folks who are all going to go buy the book and read it uh, don't skip the epilogue where there's one more great uh, ben story um hopefully we've convinced listeners that insurance is just pervasive in their lives and places they haven't even thought it exists and, and called by different names like warranties and Hopefully Ben has um, the platinum AAA now, uh, just in case. Especially as I have four sons, three of whom drive. So uh, we are in for right or wrong. In, you know, <laughs> we've got platinum AAA for for everybody. And uh, Professor, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Best of luck with the book. Thank you.